Welcome to The Chapel Online. At The Chapel, we're about helping people meet, know, and follow Jesus on the campus, in the city, and around the world. Like Psalm 119, and I want to thank Andrew for being here last week and covering that. We talked after, we talked before the service and then after, and he said, man, we, it was just too much. I said, yeah, you're right. It was just too much. It was too much when I preached it. It was too much when you preached it. I don't think I'll ever attempt Psalm 119 in a service again. 176 verses. Wow. Like Psalm 119, this psalm is an acrostic. Each little coupling is, uh, leads off with the next letter in the Hebrew alphabet. And basic bottom line is this. The committed life is a better life. And it starts with um, stating the problem, verses 1 and 2. This is what verses 1 and 2 say. Do not fret because of those who are evil or be envious of those who do wrong. They are like grass that will soon wither, like green plants that will soon die. I like to paraphrase it this way. Stay cool, don't act a fool. Don't get worked up and bothered about what doesn't last and doesn't matter. But we do. But we do. The word fret literally means to get hot. It means to get worked up. And what we'll see in this psalm is two ways to live and the two kinds of people that live them and the way it plays out. It is uh, the righteous versus the wicked. The same contrast of Psalm 73, which we looked at a few week ago, weeks ago. Now, you may have remembered how I defined the wicked. It's not just super evil, dark people. They're everyday people that we work with, that we, uh, family members that, that do not consider God in their thinking. They don't factor God into their decisions about business, about relationships, about priorities. And because of that, some people that don't factor God in at all do very evil and wicked things. But, but I don't want you to think of just some nemesis. And in our culture, a lot of people that don't consider God at all are highly elevated because of their, their athletic acumen, because of their wealth, because of all that they do, and, and they're applauded. And they succeed in the short game but not the long game. The righteous, on the other hand, are not perfect people. They're just people that are committed to factoring God into everything in their life. What would the Lord have me do? What would the Lord, how would the Lord lead me here? So these are the righteous people that they're talking about here. And this is the contrast we see over and over again because it's an ongoing struggle with all of us. So here's the problem. Being bothered by the life of the wicked. There it is. That's the problem. It reoccurs in all of our life. Asaph, the author of the 73rd Psalm, said his struggle with the wicked was that he envied them, and it almost cost him his spiritual foothold. In other words, he almost lost his spiritual life because of envy in, of, of those that succeed. As you read this Psalm over and over, it says this about the wicked. If you read the whole thing, and we can't go through the whole thing, so we're going to focus on what we read to start our service, verses 3 through 8. But if you read the whole thing, what you'll see over and over again is the wicked play the short game. They play, uh, they live life for the here and now. They're after what they can consume right now, spend right now, enjoy right now. So, 
in your outline, we have this. The wicked live their best life now. This is all that they're consumed by is what they can get, get as much as you can, spend as much as you get, you know, live life now for tomorrow, you may die. And as you read the psalm, there's a couple things that stand out. The first one is that they disadvantage other people on their climb to success. They step on top of people. Maybe you've experienced this. Here's what it says in verse 14. The wicked draw the sword and bend the bow. They bring down the poor and the needy. They slay those uh, whose ways are upright. This is a constant battle throughout human history. The strong oppressing the weak and the poor. A central tenement in the theory of evolution used to be that the strong survive and the weak perish. It's never been a tenant in biblical understanding of the heart of God. God's heart is always for the weak and the wounded, the isolated, the orphan, and the widow, no one to protect. This is the constant battle. It says in verse 21, the wicked borrow and do not repay, but the righteous give generously. Maybe you've experienced that. We've all experienced it if you've been around in the past 15 or 20 years where we've seen great financial collapses. For those of you who remember the savings and loan scandal of the 80s, and not everybody here does, but I'll just tell you, money, lots of money was taken from people. And some 1,100 people went to jail because of the manipulation of the financial uh, systems and the way they bent the rules and the way they stepped on people. And then a few years later, there was the great Enron scandal. And that CEO and others went to jail. In 2008, there was almost a collapse that crushed the world and trillions of dollars stolen. Do you have any idea how many people went to jail? One. One. Wow. Stepping on the backs of others. Because they play a short game, that's the only game they have. Their days are numbered. They're not playing the long game. Verses 9 and 10. Those who are evil will be destroyed, but those who hope in the Lord will inherit the land. We'll come back to that. In a little while and the wicked will be no more. You'll, uh, though you look for them, they will not be found. They're just going to be gone. They're short-lived. They will be destroyed. You see, if you play the short game, that's the only game you have. If you play the long game, you get the long game and the short game. So the righteous are going to live the long game. And that is doing things today to help me set up for long-term success. People that are savers are playing the long game. They put away a little money with every kind of paycheck they get for a rainy day for their children or for their children's children or someone else. They're playing the long game. And it's, uh, it's, it's about uh, delayed gratification off, often. It's about thinking about the future more than just the present. And the righteous play that game and are able to play it for two main reasons that are highlighted in this psalm that I want to highlight. The first one is, it says they will inherit the land. We just read that in verse 9, which says this. 
Those who are evil will be destroyed, but those who hope in the Lord, they're going to inherit the land. It says it again in verse 11. But the meek will inherit the land and enjoy peace and prosperity. And then verse 29 gives us a different perspective. The righteous will inherit the land and dwell in it forever. All of a sudden we realize this isn't just about the promised land and living there with peace and security, but something eternal, something that, that goes on and what is it talking about? It's talking about the presence of God. And Jesus would actually quote or, or lean on verse 11 in his great Sermon on the Mount where he said this, The meek, blessed are the meek, the humble, for they will inherit the earth. He's saying there what the psalmist is saying here. It's not the pushy. It's not the people that are self-righteous. It's the humble people who are trusting God to make things right, who will inherit the land and live with God in the new kingdom and new earth forever. That's what's being said here. Our future inheritance is guaranteed. And so we can live the long game. We can practice the long game instead of just the short game. A committed life, the long game, is a better life. The second reason why is the righteous will not be forsaken. God says he won't forsake the righteous. Those that are living for him, he's never going to abandon them. Verses 23 and 24, the Lord makes firm the steps of those who delight in him. I know where I'm standing. Though they stumble, they won't fall. The Lord upholds him with his hand. The Lord will be with me. So I can live for the long game. I can live the long game and play it. Verse 25, this is how we know David writes this at the end of his life. I was young, now I'm old. Yet I've never seen the righteous forsaken or their children begging for bread. The general truth of this statement is that God is with those that follow him. He's not saying there won't be any trouble uh, or any hardship for us, for followers of Jesus. It's not what it's saying. It's saying generally what he's observed over a lifetime is God is with him. You know, some of the hardest times in life are when God is asking us to dig deeper in our commitment to him and to enjoy him more. I think of the story out of the Old Testament of Gideon. It was to fight the enemies of the Israelites. 120,000 troops. That was the enemy's count. And God said, I need you to decrease the size of your army. Not once, but twice. Actually, I need you to take about 300 troops to tackle um, 120,000. The odds are 400 to one. And I'm going to be with you. Here's what happens at the end of the day. God is glorified. And our faith increases. We see him and we go, wow, that's amazing. So if you're in a time where you feel like you've been forsaken, you haven't been forsaken. God is asking you to dig deep. So if the problem that we face over and over again in our life is fretting, getting worked up, envying, being angry with, being jealous of the evil and their quick advance, what's the solution? This psalm would say the solution is a committed life to the Lord. And what does it mean? Well, our verses 3 through 8 give us Five imperatives, five words of action, five things that we do to show a commitment to the Lord. One of the last one is really a warning. 
uh, as much as it is an action. Here's the first one. Trust the Lord. This is what it says. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and enjoy safe pasture. What a great phrase. Trust the Lord and continue to do good. Even when you're kind of tired of it. Just trust him and continue to do good. Just keep trusting him and continue to do what's right. And then you're going to what? Enjoy safe pasture. You're going to enjoy him in the pasture. Now, one of the great things about Hebrew is that the words are not quite as precise as you would say Greek, which is what the New Testament is written in. The, the Psalms are written in Hebrew. And so depending on what translation you have, um, a read from this latter part of this phrase is translated differently. Am I enjoying safe pasture that the Lord is providing or am I cultivating faithfulness is how it's translated. Is the action on me or am I doing the action? It's the difference in those words. You can see the agrarian connection, safe pasture, cultivation. One translation says he actually guard your integrity. As you trust the Lord, I'm going to trust him and I'm going to do good. I'm going to do good to you. And I'm going to do good to my neighbor. What it's going to do is it's going to, I'm going to cultivate in myself faithfulness just by trusting him over and over and over again. And I think what happens is we trust the Lord and do good. We begin to delight in him. I think it's a, it can be resultive, not just a, a step. So verse four, delight yourself. Take delight, delight yourself in the Lord, and he'll give you the desires of your heart. It was the missionary Elizabeth Elliot that pointed out correctly, he puts the desires that are in your heart, not every desire of your heart does he answer. But here's what happens when we delight. We're transformed. We're transformed by what we delight in. That's just true about life. So David says, delight yourself in the Lord. Delight in him. The root of that Hebrew word means delicate, soft, dainty. There's a great day. It happens about once a week at our house. It's called clean sheet day. It's when the sheets have been cleaned, and the bed has been made. And as we retire for the day, Mary will also often announce it's clean sheet day. And what that means is it's going to feel awesome. Sheets are soft, taut, and I'm going to climb into bed and I'm going to delight myself in them. That's this word. You just crawl into the Lord's presence and delight yourself there. And as you do, you know what your desires become like? They become more and more like His. Just take an aged couple that has continued to stoke the fire of love. They begin to long for and delight in what pleases the other as much as what pleases themselves. And they can't wait to give to the other because actually the longer they're together and the more they love each other, those desires almost become synonymous. And that's what's happening to, to David. Trust in the Lord, continue to do good. This is the first step of the committed life. Then delight yourself in the, in the softness and the tenderness of the Lord. And he will begin to transform you 
and you will begin to delight what he delights in. Then when you ask for what's in your heart, he won't hesitate to answer because it'll be what's in his heart. And then the third one, commit your way. Commit your way. It says in verses five and six, commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him. And he will do this. He will make your righteous rewards shine like the dawn. Your vindication like the noonday sun. We all know how bright the noonday sun is if it's not raining here, right? The word here, commit, the root word of this means to roll off. To completely unburden yourself on the Lord. Total commitment, like a trust fall. I'm putting all my weight on you. All of it. Peter would pick up this idea when he would say, cast your cares upon him because he cares for you. First Peter 5, 7. He's saying here, commit your life, all of it, all of your dreams, all of them, and your future, all of it to the Lord. And as you do, what he will do is he'll make your righteousness shine like the dawn and the vindication, your vindication like the noonday sun. Here's the problem, I think. We are... Our attempts, now this, I just, as I was praying about this, I thought about this. We would like there to be a lot of shine on our life, but sometimes our attempts are so shallow, so, so little, right? We're not living, you know, really leveraging all that God might have. We're not, we're not trusting him for great things, for little things. So, you know, I pray for parking lot, uh, parking spaces in a busy parking lot, like any good Christian would, and I rejoice over it. And when I get into a conflict over who gets it and I don't blow my horn and they back up, my cause has been vindicated. It's a little shine, right? I was with the church planners in Cincinnati and in Indiana. That group of people put it all out there. And their righteous act, their attempt of great things is pretty large. And so the shine is brighter. I don't, know if, I don't know if that is exactly what this says, but that's kind of where my brain went. Think of Queen Esther. There's a whole book by that name in the Old Testament. She was, she was set up to be the queen of Persia, but she's Jewish. And there was a man on the court of King Xerxes who hated Jews, Haman, Evil Haman, he's called. Hater of the Jews. That's his title. That's his moniker. And he devised a plan to exterminate the Jewish people from the Persian Empire. It's not a new idea. And Mordecai, Esther's uncle, said, Hey, babe, you better tell the king you're a Jew. And she's like, I don't know. He goes, hey. You were born for this day. And so with, with great uh, potential cost to her, her life, she tells the king. And the story revolves around the boldness and the commitment of Mordecai and Esther. And what happens is the gallows that Haman had create, uh, built to, to, to hang the Jewish people on, he was hanged on himself. And then the edict went out to the whole Persian Empire that the Jews could actually defend themselves from the uh, undercurrent that Haman had put together to destroy them. The whole story is flipped over in an unbelievable way, like the noonday sun. Why? Because the cost was 
the extermination of the people of Israel. So I'm, I'm personally challenged by this, to commit more, not less to the Lord, more than a parking space, if you will, but a 10-year vision that our church has. How in the world are we going to send hundreds of people to the field and out into ministry? Lord, vindicate this righteous thing that you've put on our heart. Make it shine like the noonday sun. So there's number three. Number four. Oh, so hard for us. Be still. Be still before the Lord and wait how patiently for him. Repeat it. Do not fret when people succeed in their ways, when they carry out their wicked schemes. Your translation may read, be silent. That's what it literally says. Be silent, which communicates a lot of confidence. I don't have to say anything. I can just be with you. Like a good friend you don't have to talk to. He's just understood. I'm going to trust the Lord. My trust is so absolute and my commitment is so absolute and my delight is so thorough that I can just be with the Lord. Be still and wait on him. What am I waiting for? I'm waiting for his vindication. He knows the time. He knows the place. He knows the method. He knows how to bring the most glory to himself. He knows how to grow me up. So I'm just going to trust in him. I'm going to wait patiently on the Lord. A committed life is a better life because we can rest in it. We can rest in it. So we trust, we delight ourselves, we commit our way. We're still before him, quietly waiting. And then the fifth one says, refrain from anger in your outline. And this is the ultimate reason why. Verse 30, uh, excuse me, verse 8. Refrain from anger and turn from wrath. Do not fret. It only leads to evil. I was having a conversation with my sweet wife, Mary, who helps me find words to attach to my emotions because I'm very bad at it. And we were talking about something, and she said this, you know, I'm just going to be angry about that for just a little longer, and then I'll be done. And I thought, that's pretty cool. I might try that, except that's not what it says. It says, watch out. Our anger, our fretting, our, our being bothered by this, it's not a neutral thing. It's not like, you know what? I'll get back to God in a minute. I'm going to have a little pity party. I'm going to rent some balloons. I'm going to get angry for a minute. And then I'll come. And, and David says, oh, watch that. Because it, it's not neutral. It, ha, it's, it doesn't have no effect on you. It's not a benign ex, uh, emotion. It actually only leads to evil because the more angry I get, the more discontent I become with the Lord. And I say, you know what? You haven't given me, you haven't provided. I'm getting behind. And before you know it, I'm doubting him and envying the, the wicked. You see how that works? So we need to abandon fretting as a strategy and turn back to trusting, ongoing trusting, 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 delighting, delighting, committing, committing, waiting. I'm playing the long game. Here's our bottom line. The committed life is a better life. The committed life is a better life. So if you are a Christian caught up with anger and envy, let me, uh, let me, let me address that. 
I mean, David said, I was young and now I'm old. So I want to I want to address those two populations in the room. I want to start with the old. I think I know it better. <laughs> when we get on the other side of midlife, when we get toward the end of life, the U.S. government will demand that you quit playing the long game, that you take out your savings. You can reinvest it. They're going to try to force you to get it out. And when you're tired and you've done everything and you've volunteered in every place and you've raised your kids and you've raised half the life of your grandkids and you're tired and you're worn out, you can say to yourself, you know what? I'm not living for the long game anymore. I'm living for the short game. I deserve it. I'm, 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 I don't have a lot of time left. And we can before we know it, start chasing things that aren't going to lead to life. They're going to lead to death. Christians can do this. They can tap out too early. It's hard to finish well and keep your eyes on the horizon. And yet the Lord calls us to do just that. Look, the inheritance is assured. Keep living the long game. I'm not going to abandon you, and I haven't. Can you look back and examine your life and see the faithfulness of the Lord? Would you do that? So that's when I'm old. It's easy to kind of go, you know what? I'm just tired. I've been faithful. I'm good. And there's, there's story after story in the Old Testament where leaders and, and people have done that. David, at the end of his life, he's up on the rooftop of his palace looking out and that's what leads to his sin with the Bathsheba. Everybody else is at war. And he's just going, look what I've done. I deserve it. And there's no one there but him. Moses. Moses had a tough job. He was a shepherd of people. They call him pastors today. It's not an easy thing. Right? You just kind of, and he, by the time they got in, they started complaining again about the same old, same old thing. There's not enough to eat. There's not enough water. It's always the same. God says, I need you to speak to this rock and give the people some water. And like a two iron in my hand, I just like, give me some more water. And it came out and people, it's all there. Just go read it. And God said, you know what, Moses? That's not what I asked you to do. So you're just going to have to climb the hill and look at the problem. You're not going in. It's hard to finish well. It's hard to keep going. Trust him with the future generations. You trusted him with yours, trust him with the future ones. Right? Delight in him. Ask him to restore the joy of your salvation. Commit not only your way, but your family's legacy to him. And wait on him. Wait on him. So that's if you're old. What about the young? Now, if you're young, you're afraid you're going to miss out, right? I got to get out of the market now. It's going down. I'm losing. I got to play the short game. I got to try to get the head. Then I'll play the long game. I'm missing out. People are getting ahead of me. They're advancing. And so you begin to compromise in little ways. 
You begin to fret in large ways. And you'd think, just this semester, just this semester. So the next two years, right, I'm just going to do this, not knowing that it only leads to evil. And then when you finally think, oh, I'm now going to play the long game, you're further off course than you once thought you were. You haven't made any ground. It's mentioned in the scripture so many times because, because we all deal with it. There's never a day that it's not troublesome and bothersome when those who don't know the Lord seem to succeed effortlessly. And those of us who live for him seem to be getting behind. Thanks for joining us. To find out more about the chapel, visit thechapelbr.com.